when field season needed it the most, we are back, baby. It's everybody's favorite science-based conversational podcast. It's your host, Mike, with his guest, Halea Eastburn. Turn this shit up, it's gonna be a plant pal summer bitch. Um, hi, my name is Halia Eastburn. I'm an ecologist and um, the lab manager at Carnivoro, which is a carnivorous plant nursery out here in Austin, Texas. I just get bits and pieces of what you do through like your Instagram stories. Are you doing sure. tissue propagation? What do you do? Yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah, so uh, um, I manage I the tissue culture lab that we have at Carnivoro and we're actively propagating um, primarily Nepenthes, pitcher plants in cultivation, but a variety of other carnivorous plants and other like rare um, tropicals in the lab. Um, and just having another stream of production for the nursery um, and trying to get some like cool cultivars into production so that we can make these plants way more accessible uh, to people because they're pretty pricey um, still in the hobby and we want more people to enjoy these plants and um, tissue culture is a great way to do that. So, Totally. I was at like a fancy boutique plant store, you know, like mm-hmm. with the variegated Monsteras that are $900. Yeah. But I yeah. saw um, Nepenthes albomarginata, just like a mm-hmm. little four inch pot. And I was like, mm-hmm. scream. I was like making a scene. I was like, you have this? What? Like this is around now? Like <laughs> for really years nice I was plant. trying to find one of those and it was just yeah. like, you know, the gold standard of like, oh, it might be around someday. Nice. It's like, it's so cool That's to awesome. see all these species that I used to geek out over, like common, like almost, you know household like kind of like lambs for the slaughter like the sundews you give around people they just die in the kitchen yeah um yeah it's pretty cool i think like this recent plant hobby expansion that happened during the pandemic like um and like the rise of all these like kind of kitschy uh hobbies that are kind of you know uh adjacent to plant growing you know like the witchy stuff like that kind of has gotten people really interested in looking for like weird oddity kind of things and carnivorous plants really fit into that like they structurally are very strange and so um yeah I've, I've we've had a lot more like little nurseries and stuff reach out to us to get um some of our plants in their stores and things like that because they're just like weird and cool looking and they fit that aesthetic so that's cool I know, they're so t- they're definitely were like my first hyper fixation when I was realizing I like plants and want to work with them. Yeah. It's just like, they're just so, I mean, one? what's that? What was your intro, like carnivorous plant into? Probably. Well, so Massachusetts has the bogs I was talking about mm-hmm. before we started recording mm-hmm. and there's Saracenia purpurea, which is, um, mm-hmm. what's its common name? Just purple pitcher plant. I think so. Yeah. I think it's the main one. Yeah, it's just like a squat little passive trap one that has mm-hmm. an endemic midge and an endemic mosquito to its yeah. uh, pitcher fluids, yeah. which is crazy because they submerge like for half the year. Yeah. So there's constant inflow outflow, but these things have learned to evolve within essentially a stomach, which that's the yeah. thing. What I was like, because like growing up, I thought I didn't know anything about anything. So I thought that the 
traps were flowers somehow right. and then oh, yeah. got eaten. Yeah. That's it's super like, Oh, common. no, it's like they their midvein developed into a stomach. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes more sense. Sure. Yeah. And then they have flowers, which are equally as weird looking. Yeah. Everyone always trips out over those, too. They're like, what are these? I'm like, they're flowers. Like, they also have to flower. <laughs> yeah. I got one right now. It's been so cold and damp here. It's like yeah. June gloom is in full effect. But my mm-hmm. little Saracenia outside trying its best to flower for the first time. I'm like, come <laughs> on, you've got it. <laughs> Go for it. That's but awesome. yeah, no, so the Saracenias, um, the Drosseras, a couple of Utricularias. I didn't quite get on to those until I like understood what those were yeah. and how 99% of it's like invisible oh, in yeah. the water. I, yeah, I love Utricularia. They're one of my favorite genus of carnivorous plants. They're just fascinating. There's some really cool work um, done by, like, is it Dr. Bauer? Um, you'll re- Power. Um, she did some work on like how fast the traps close, and it's like I don't know. It's pulling like multiple G's when that trap closes. It's crazy. Yeah, it's like one of the fastest things tiny. alive, right? Yeah, it's crazy. That's fucking like, crazy. They had it compared to like the velocity of like water coming into a like a little fry's mouth, a little fish fry's mouth, and it's like. And which is also really fast. I guess like that pressure that they um, produce to suck in food is like it's even faster than that. So it's kind of cool. Huh. Yeah. I want to see them fight now. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, cool. So how did you get into carnivorous plants? Did you kind of just happen your way into it, or was this like a conscious direction? Um, this is always kind of a funny story for me to tell um, because. I, I dated this guy who got me, who was growing them when I met him. And, um, and like now me and him aren't together or anything like that. So I'm always like, <laughs> um, but no, he introduced <laughs> me to these plants and he, uh, he grew orchids and stuff like that too. And I was growing house plants and we kind of bonded over that, like in the beginning of our relationship. And then like my interest from, for carnivorous plants kind of like took off in a different direction where he was like, really into like what's commonly seen in the hobby where like uh people are super interested in the aesthetic like let's read these pictures like really huge and like crazy and all these crazy colors and they're just really into like that aspect of growing plants which is you know prevalent in all other types of taxa right um people just want like the coolest biggest and stuff like that so that was like his interest in the plants they're just so weird but my interest as soon as like i connected the dots between them like needing insects for food but also for pollination and like those complex interactions because at the time I was finishing my bachelor's and I was taking some entomology classes and so I was like putting all these pieces together between like oh these plants are really cool and they have these weird traps and novel things going on and then they have these complex relationships and like my brain just started going and going and so uh we grew plants together for a good five years and then um I, I just continued growing them they were just super interesting and at that point i was done with uh my degree i had made all these cool connections with people in the community like other scientists um and, and cool folks and stuff like that that grow these plants um and by the time i was ready to go to grad school um i was looking for i was looking for programs that were like studying like uh, again, I was looking at plant and insect interaction kind of studies. So I was also looking at like pollinators, um, like weird pollinator uh, interactions and stuff like that. 
um, native bees, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I just so happened to come across a posting for studying Saracenia out here in Texas. And um, I hadn't really thought about making carnivorous plants like into my career or really focusing on them um, academically or anything like that. But I figured like there's only a handful of researchers here in the United States that are studying carnivorous plants. And so this is probably gonna be my only chance to study them in this context um, and get that uh, you know, get that mentorship within this area and like, and like really like meet all of the other researchers that are doing this work. And so it was a really, really cool opportunity to dive into that, that world. Um, and, and that side of carnivorous plants. And, uh, and so, yeah, I came out to Texas for grad school and studied Saracenia alata, um, and aspects of the reproductive biology. Cause again, I like, flowers and insects and, and all this, and that marries so well within carnivorous plants. Um, and so, yeah, I, I feel like those complex interactions, um, like I'm an ecologist at heart, and so uh, it just kind of made sense for me to continue studying these plants. And, um, and now I'm working with them in this really different aspect where we're breeding and, and propagating for, for profit and, and for conservation as well, but for profit, which is different than before. Um, and I'm getting to learn about them in so many different ways and, and learning that we don't really know anything about these plants uh, as much as we do with other sorts of flowering plants. And so that the mystery of it and and like the complexity of everything just kind of keeps pushing me uh, to continue asking questions. Um, and so, yeah, that's that was kind of my journey into kind of plants. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. So do you find, do you know with the pollinators, are they when you crack open a pitcher and see what they've been eating, are mm -hmm. they eating their own pollinators? I know they keep the flowers super tall to mm -hmm. kind of avoid an accidental overlap, but is that mm -hmm. kind of like, hey, you know, we get some, we lose some? Um, so it kind of depends on the plant itself. There's, you know, over 800 species of carnivorous plants all over the world. Um, mm -hmm. and they're I guess all for little... Saracenia, I'm thinking. Yeah, for, yeah if we're going to talk about Saracenia, then... Um, then actually their main pollinator is bumblebees. And uh, and at the time that the flowers are up, there's really no active pitchers. And so usually when you crack open those pitchers, you're finding ants, um, various types of diptera from like just your, you know, blow flies to crane flies, um, other types of midges, mosquitoes, that kind of thing. Um, like shit tons of ants and spiders are living in there. Um, They'll catch wasps, though, and other smaller bees, but uh, which might also be partially pollinating them. But the bumblebees are just so super efficient at uh, getting into their flower structures and gathering up the most amount of pollen. And I don't think I've ever heard of a bumblebee getting into the trap. It's just, uh, you know, from a phenolo uh, phenology point of view, it's pretty rare, I think. And I think structurally, too, like, they're huge huge insects and uh and the pitchers aren't always uh accessible to them like they're just they're just not really gonna get in there just physically can't ball. fit they're just you know just bump, bumping around um so yeah it's really rare that they even catch the pollinators which is super cool and that's pretty rare that's pretty common i think across all taxa of carnivorous plants i was just reading up about nepenthes pollinators because that's a class of, of carnivorous plants that we know very little about still, especially their flowers 
the flowers have been overlooked by a lot of people because they're kind of insignificant mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, but they're, the nectars that they produce for flowers opposed to their pitchers are often drastically different. And so they're just already attracting different taxa of, of insects intentionally um, to, to not get their pollinators at all. So. Did you see, I think, God, I don't know. This is why I shouldn't take two month breaks from doing these things because I repeat <laughs> topics. But they <laughs> discovered uh, Nepenthes with subterranean traps. Yeah. Yeah, Holy really shit. weird to me. Yeah. That is so cool. I knew there was like one kind of Nepenthes for every, like, you know, there's the, uh-huh. oh gosh, there's the one that eats like detritus and leaf litter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you yeah. know, there's like one kind, oh, there's a carnivorous one, there's a vegetarian mm-hmm. one, there's this mm-hmm. one, like, oh, this one catches. This, I, mm-hmm. Did you know anything about that species? Is that so brand new that it's like kind of not even known yet? Yeah, that's pretty brand new. I think he, I read the paper, uh, about the collection and, and uh, taxonomy on that. And it seems like they've had samples of that plant for a good decade. Uh, and they've just been trying to figure out if it was an anomaly or um, if it just was happenstance, like those pictures were covered, you know, after that they were formed. They weren't intentionally formed in the ground. And so it took a long time for, for them to suss that out, but they found a pretty good population of them, I guess. Um, but yeah, there's very little in the paper really investigating it. I think like we just kind of lo- located this like one population of them. And so yeah. we're all trying to figure out what's going on. It's kind of cool. Um, so with you, you said Utricularia is your favorite. Yeah, they're one of do my you, favorites. Yeah, do you grow those? Do you have a lot in Texas? Um, we do have a lot in Texas. I think I've seen at least three species here in the bog that I worked at. In, in one box. And so that's pretty good for a single location. Um, but yeah, I, I really like their flowers. Their flowers are so showy and gorgeous. Oh, no. And um, I used to grow them in a container where the traps would like be suspended in water. And so you could actually mm-hmm. see the traps themselves, which is kind of fun. That's um, super cool. It's a fun way to grow them. But yeah, I think they're just like so unassuming and a gracile and delicate looking. Um, and they're just, I don't know, every time I see them, I'm like, damn, just blown away. So I know, like a good patch of them out in a pond, just like mm-hmm. thousands of little, you know, purple, yellow, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I saw some pictures of a field of them in Australia, which is somewhere I want to go see carnivorous plants. And it was just like this whole fucking meadow with these beautiful purple flowers. And to think like they have all these traps underneath and there's like all this stuff going on. That's so cool love that i know I, I always used to like um rag on Werner herzog for being like oh nature is nothing but suffering and pain and blah 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 but like you see a pretty field of flowers and underneath is like just war and hell for these little microbes and bugs and arthropods like i know it's, it's I, I hate to anthropomorphize them because that's everyone has done that to death with numerous plants but it's so wild that like okay i have like it an is. analog i can relate to this plant more than others because they have to yeah. eat too <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a cool way that I've seen a lot of people connect with these plants. I know. It's, I'm, you know what? I'm going to apologize for the carnivorous plant bros because I was one <laughs> absolutely at first. I was so stoked on all, everything. I'm like a species purist now. Like I don't oh, mess with yeah. the crazy hybrids and back crosses. Like you're talking about like the biggest and best and most colorful, but I know. it's just like... They're- 
this exists as is, you know, like the, as yeah. a specimen, this is the craziest thing. Yeah. I like the I like the complex hybrids for people who are going to grow them in their houses because we get all these like we get all this really nice you know hybrid vigor coming in from everywhere and so we get some like really resilient genetics going on and so like I like I like the complex hybrids for those folks but yeah I really like to see what's what each species is capable of uh, we we only have so many select individuals really in cultivation. Um, and so we haven't even seen like the, the full diversity that's available in each species, unless you go out and see them in the wild, um, which I, I haven't gotten to do that yet. And so, but I've heard there's just so much more diversity within those populations than we actually see in cultivation. Mm-hmm. So I, I like to bring in, I, so yeah, I like to see more species stuff just to see that, that range. Um. So let's, I want to switch gears into mm-hmm. your time as an arborist. Oh, yeah. You had mentioned that around the yeah. Bay Area of California. Uh, yeah. Do you have any field horror stories? I know arborists get into places that most people don't. <laughs> like, right-of-ways just seem to attract weird things. Yeah. Did you ever have any cool finds, any horrifying finds? Um, let's see. So I worked mostly in the hills um, outside of Hayward, Fremont. Uh, Niles Canyon was a big place that I patrolled a lot. Oh, awesome. All those areas. Um, And often I was out there by myself. Um, And the folks are usually cool. Like you're calling landowners before you show up on their property. And so you're usually fine in that respect. Um, Well, yeah, you get out there in the middle of nowhere and you find some weird stuff. I found like there's a lot of skeletons, a lot of cool like patches of plants and flowers that I didn't know existed before, which is cool growing up in that area, um, just to become more intimate with the land that way. Um, I did get stalked by a mountain lion once. I think that was probably the spookiest oh, thing that happened. Oh, God. Yeah, it was morning time. Um, and uh, and that, I think, was like the second time that had happened to me. But I was by myself this time, and so that was a little extra spooky. So I can, I can tell that story. It's kind of a fun one yeah what happened with that um, obviously it worked out <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or else you wouldn't be here yeah, yeah. um so to set set this up i was going through um where was that what is that canyon called in Sonol. that canyon that goes way into the back what is that called um uh there's i mean there's niles canyon there's pleasanton ridge there's um Oh, it's Kilcare Road. So yes. I was going along Kilcare Road, which is, you know, the Pleasanton Ridge is on one side, and there's a ridge on the other that goes over into Fremont. Um, and so I've been patrolling that area for a while, but I was working my way down Kilcare, and uh, we are clearing the lines, and the, ri- the lines run along, like, uh, up above the houses on the ridge line. So as I'm, as I'm marking trees for removal or trims or whatever, I'm going up and down this hillside, <laughs> and just uh, making sure I'm getting the right clearance. But I have to kind of move up above the lines and come back down the hillside to get underneath them. And so I'm just kind of – so I spent I spent like a good month working through just that piece of road, um, tagging all those trees. And I'm on the last part of the circuit, and I have to get above some people's houses. It's like 7 in the morning. I'm like, okay, I got to get – I got to get these trees marked and get these last couple locations done so I can get to my next place. I've been there for far too long. 
And um, so I'm like, I'm going to get out there before it gets too hot. It was already kind of getting into the 90s, and that's terrible for walking uphill. <laughs> so um, get there at 7. Uh, in, the, in the week before, I had seen signs of a predator in the canyon. I'd seen um, turkeys. There's like hella turkeys down there. Um, and I'd seen some turkey carcasses that had been uh, attacked and then drug across the road and down into the creek. And so I was like, oh, okay, there's something out here. Um, and then some of the residents had told me that they had seen a juvenile lion uh, hanging out by their houses, just like chilling up on the rocks, checking them out. And they were being very wary because everyone kind of knows that juvenile lions are a little more ambitious. They're going to get themselves into trouble. So everyone was kind of on the lookout um, for this lion. And so I, I had already clocked those things in my head as I'm getting out of my truck this morning to get the, get this work done. And so it's really cool. I see a lot of uh, I see a lot of turkeys out that morning. It's like foggy, like like this perfect, like foggy spring morning in, Cal in Northern California. And so I'm like climbing up this little hillside behind someone's house and I'm, and I'm right above someone's house. Like they have uh, like a deck or whatever uh, behind their house. That's up this hillside. There's like a little tree house up there and stuff too. So I'm like in someone's property, there's people maybe 50 feet away from me sleeping. Um, and I'm just trying to mark these trees and stuff like that. And, I got like music going on in one of my earbuds and I'm just kind of jamming out on my, my uh, tablet and things done. Um, and, and while I'm out there, uh, situational awareness is like huge. If you're a field biologist, like you always just got to have your, your sensors going. And so, uh, I'm, I'm always kind of clocking sounds of brush in the back. And for the last month I hear a lot of deer, you know, deer come through and they're clomping around. They're really heavy. They clomp through the brush and it's very characteristic. Or you hear like little uh, little birds going through the brush and they're like picking and stuff like that. And that's a very unique sound as well. And so those were the ones that I was attuned to. And this morning I heard something different. Uh, it was like a heavy step through the brush, but it was measured uh, and slow. Not, not like the kind of clumsy grazing of a deer. And so... Yeah. My ears perked up to that, and um, I'm on the hillside looking downhill at these trees, and the lines are right kind of in front of me, above me. And um, this sound is coming from behind me, uphill. And so I turn around, I look at the hillside, and there's just like some oak trees, there's a little tree house there, and I'm like, okay, like no deer around, uh, kind of wait for a bit, and I just turn back, my back around, and I... I put my head down and I start writing again. And right away I hear it again. And I turn around again and it stops. And this, oh, is, no. where I, this is where I get uh, worried because if anyone knows, not lions watch your eyes to see where you're going. And so that's why a lot of people wear sunglasses on the back of their heads while they're, when they're going through lion country. And so um, I stayed facing the hillside and I was like, I know exactly what I need to write down. I'm just like, trying to write this thing down in my tablet. Like, I just need like two seconds. And so I <laughs> can you wait? I have paperwork. <laughs> I know. I'm like, come on. And so I'm like facing the hillside. I'm facing the noise where it's coming. And I look down and I hear it getting even closer. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I, I think I tried one more time because I realized it's watching my eyes go down and, and look back up. And so, mm -hmm. um, and it was, I don't know how close it was, but it was close enough that I could hear it. And so like the second time that happened, I was like, all right, my heart started racing. I'm like, I'm out of here. Like, this isn't worth it. I'll just 
fucking write something at the bottom of the hell. Like, <laughs> I was like, at that point, getting too nervous. I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm going to write the right thing. So I'm just like, I'm just fucking out of here. And I booked it out yeah. real fast. Um, and that's probably the closest I've come to a mountain lion. Um, it's it too close. That's terrifying. Did you yeah. ever see it itself? Or you just heard the footsteps? That's Never. the worst part. Never. I, somewhere I, I don't know how far away it was, but you know, those juvenile cats are pretty big, so uh, I, I'm surprised it was able to hide itself so well. But it was also like, you know, 7, 7.30 in the morning, the light was really low, like perfect time for predators. And so, uh, yeah. 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 Cool Dang. Did you said yeah. there was another time too with somebody else? Oh, yeah. One time I was hiking out in uh, Sequoia National Park, um, and me and my friend were walking our dogs up, up this road. Uh, we were kind of camped out. Outside of Sequoia National Park, there's this place called Mineral King, and uh, there's a bunch of cabins before you get to that entrance to like that part of the park, and so we were staying in some of those cabins. It's usually like it's usually for like all the adventure folks so like there's not a lot of tours back there and this area is closed off like most of the year and it opens really late because it's usually snowed in for a lot longer than the rest of the area and so anyways we're back there and we're hiking up this road it's abandoned we're like the only people up this this back road and uh we're turning around the dogs to head back to the cabin and i'm like looking down a fuss with my dog and uh my friend's like oh my god there's an outline and i'm like i look up and i don't see anything She's like, it just crossed right there between those two trees. Like, I saw cross the road and, like, go between those two trees. And I'm like, oh, my God. And we had to cross that point. Like, we had to walk right past it. And so we're like, oh, fuck. Like, where's this cat? We can't see it, right? And so we walk a little closer, and there's this big, uh, you know, hedge right off, the, right off the road going down this embankment. And uh, as we walk closer, we see this big fucking, like, not lion head. Like, I swear to God. Like bigger than a basketball, oh my God. and it and it like <laughs> and it like peeks out of the hedge. He's like, huh? <laughs> and like we walk eyes with it, and I swear to God, the the lion's eyes were like, huh? <laughs> like we were all surprised to see each other. I don't think he expected us to like turn around and, and catch him. I think he had been following wow. us for for a while, and then crossed the road and was like, okay, well, I'm just gonna go on my way. And so we kind of ran into each other like that, and um, my friend. <laughs> My friend starts uh, singing, uh, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. And we start, like, screaming, singing <laughs> yeah. that. She'll just try and, like, get it away from us. We're just like, let's make a lot of noise, right? So she starts singing that, and we just, like, sung that all the way back home because then we had to pass that point where we knew it, where it was. And as soon as we got there, we looked on them thinking, it's gone. We don't know where it went. And, um, and so, like, all the way home, they were, like, checking behind us, like, if they're not have followed us. <laughs> and so, Yeah. Lines are, lines are everywhere. That's so creepy. That's yeah. hilarious, though. That's the song like that you chose to fend off. <laughs> <laughs> it was a happy song, though. It was like super upbeat. I think. It was, yeah, nobody dies that occasion. song. It's perfect. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So. I've yeah, never seen, as far as I know, I've never seen a mountain lion. Yeah. And that's good. I mean, yeah, it's good. Well, I mean, I don't know if one's seen me. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. Probably. But um bears like i've had mm. really good luck with too even like oh, i worked cool. in montana for a season and the only time it ever got like close was i remember we were hiking along this disused road so it's all brushy mm-hmm. trying to get out to the site and i was like i'm gonna stop and take a pee and i'm peeing 
in this little ditch and all of a sudden like 10 feet to my left this black bear just jumps out and i think it was the no. same deal as like oh what are you guys doing oh i gotta yeah. go like, like, and so, you know, like I'm, spot. yeah i'm like i'm the most vulnerable i could be right now this is like <laughs> this is worst case scenario to try to fight off a bear fucking love that that's great yeah i've only seen bears out there in parks uh in sequoia national park you can see them in the meadow uh, crescent meadow is a good place to see bears and there's often mothers and crabs, which is really cool and special. Yeah. If you're there right time of year. So, yeah, I like bears. They're great. Every time I drive through the bay, I'm like, oh, my God, this used to, grizzly bears used to be here. Like, San Jose yeah. was just grizzly bear hunting ground. It's crazy. To I think. know. Wow, yeah. That's a lot to think about. I would have loved to see what it looked like before all the development. I know if I had a time machine. It's not even that far back. It's like 200 years. You can see. I know. God damn it. That's uh, so do you get out and about much in Texas? I know public access to land is a, a sticky issue out there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's like 90-something percent of the land is privately owned and probably privately owned by oil and gas. kind of stuff, which is terrible. Um, but actually here in Austin, and what I love about Austin, opposed to uh, North Texas, is like there's all these green belts that they've preserved with like hiking trails and stuff like that all of the riparian zones are pretty well protected around here um and so that's where me and my dog go hiking most weekends there's like some really nice off-leash hiking trails for dogs um that run right along the creeks and stuff like that and so we've been getting out a lot while the weather is still uh you know bearable um and we've been we've been playing in the water um, but it gets pretty hot here, middle of the summer. It gets really, really terrible. So, so we kind of stay out of the sun uh, uh, during that time. But it's um, it's been an interesting place to live, especially compared to California, because um, we just have really harsh summers and really harsh winters out here comparatively. And so that's been a new experience for me. Like, what the fuck is this ice everywhere? What, what the fuck do I do? Yeah, well, that's kind of, I mean, I don't know at all. I'm probably talking out of my ass. But, I mean, every time I hear about Texas in the news in the winter, it's like, oh, they're having a historic cold snap. And, you know, like the grid wasn't prepared for it. Yeah. Like, it, I know. That's, We're that's breaking brutal. too many records up here for bullshit like that. <laughs> um, but, yeah. The plants out here are really cool, though. Um, so, I'm, I'm kind of, how, how I like to meet places that I live is, like, through the plants and so I spend a long time, like, when I move new places, like, learning all the plants and, and learning their seasons. And that kind of helps me, like, acclimate to a place. And so it's been, it's been fun to do that here. The oaks here are really different. Here in Austin, in central Texas, we have, like, tillandsia that grow on the oak trees, which um, happens in California. Unreal. But you have to be, like, on the coast to see that. And so it's really cool to see that here. It's just really pretty. So, yeah. There is a species of wild rice, I think, Ziziana, uh, Ziziana Texicana, Texicana, something like that. Let me look at it real quick. Yeah, Ziziana Texana, and Ziziana Texana, and um, it exists in like two populations on the San Marcos River. Oh, like, it's one of the rarest plants in Texas, if not the country, and it's oh, wow. Um, 
Yeah, it's just, you know, I, I'm sure it's been drastically reduced through, like, agriculture and development and stuff. But yeah. it's just, like, all of a sudden, I don't, it's so crazy to me that an aquatic plant that can hypothetically just up and move downstream yeah. whenever it wants is, like, relegated to this one little stretch. Yeah, but, um, that's interesting. People have been seeing that a lot lately. It's really oh, cool. Oh, cool. I'll have to go down there. San Marcos River is usually where people go uh, tubing. <laughs> yeah. Drinking and tubing. Um, so that's all the only thing I've heard about it. Um, but I'll have to go look for rice. That also sounds cool. Um, yeah, the waterways are here are really cool. We have some like endemic species of salamanders that live in Austin. Really? In, in Bar Barton Creek, yeah. There's like three or four springs, and these are the only places in the world that you find these particular salamanders. Wow. So that's really cool. And it's nice that Austin City, at least, um, really cares about the wildlife and uh, the environment on the whole, it feels like, compared to other parts of Texas. And so that's been, that's been a really nice part about living here in Austin. I lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico, for oh, cool. a quick minute. And, um, How do you like that? that? I thought about moving out there once. It's a really cool city. I wasn't prepared yeah. for how cold it got in the winter. Mm. Yeah, like, it was like snowing because mm. you're at like 7,000 feet, I think, or yeah, something crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um, the Santa, I used to live like next to the Santa Fe River, which most cool. of the time is dry. Mm. And I guess it used to not quite be. And mm. it's been really kind of drained from agriculture. It's one of the most yeah. imperiled rivers in America. Wow. But um, there was, you know, I immediately started to obsess over the, like, hydrology and ecology yeah. of it. Yeah. Because uh, they would release water. There's a dam up the way that takes okay. a lot of the water. And so, especially in the fall when I was there, like, there would be kind of, you know, you'd see just that little trickle coming down in the afternoons yeah. to kind of, like, yeah. simulate the monsoon floods they'd get. <laughs> yeah. But um, they had so many springs around town that, you know, there was like something That's like cool. 23 springs that fed into it. And each one is like marked and known. And it's just like, oh, yeah, this one's in the basement of this building. Oh, there's a restaurant oh. now on top of that one. I'm like, how oh, the hell? Like, are your basements how not flooded? How do you put a fucking restaurant on a spring? Oh, damn it. <laughs> that, I, that's very common here, though, in Texas. Like, uh, mo most of Texas is supposed to be is like a floodplain. Um, yeah, and, and it's so funny in the in the winter when we get really good rain. Everyone's like, "Oh, it's flooding!" I'm like, "Yeah, guys, like this was all supposed to be like this is all riparian zone that we built on." <laughs> like it's idiots. <laughs> um, like all so the canals out in Pleasanton and Dublin. That's that oh, used yeah. to be a wetland, and oh, yeah. that they're drains. Like it's just I had no all idea it was that wet out there. Yeah. yeah, it was. I remember being a kid. Um, my family has a house right off of Bernal, which is right on the creek. Um, like there's that little bridge uh, on the creek that goes to Foothill. Um, and, uh, I remember we had an El Nino year. I was probably seven or something like that. And that creek almost flooded the banks that year. We had to go down there and put like sandbags and stuff like that. Wow. Um, and so that was, that was amazing. That was, I don't know what, ugh. 30 years ago or something. Uh, that, that pains me to say that I was an adult, but, um, uh, but yeah, that was, that was wild. And I haven't seen it that full sense. I don't know how that water's managed, but, um, but yeah, it's kind of crazy to think about. Wetlands. We used to go find like crawfish though. You can find like crawfish in those, 
Yeah, um, which the San Lorenzo River right next yeah. to me is uh-huh. ground zero for that crawfish in California. They did a study in like 1910 to see if they would predate on uh, like trout fry. Uh-huh. And for, you know, for some reason out of the just rampant animal abuse of the beginning of the last century, they're like, well, let's not kill them after they're done. Let's just let them go. And now they've spread to every goddamn waterway in the West. They're like one of the worst invasives. Like there's, uh, you drive through the Delta in California and there's all these yeah. like, you know, like, oh, the crayfish festivals this weekend. They just catch as many as they physically can. Wow, and they it. extirpated, there was an endemic one to uh-huh. the Delta slash Bay and uh-huh. the invasive one won out. So. Of course. Yeah. Is that how you got into plants and nature as a kid? Just like, splashed around in the creeks and stuff? Um, I don't know. I, I think I grew up just kind of, I don't know, I was like an 80s kid, so like you're out all the time. Like you're never inside your house. Like maybe you watch TV a couple hours a day, but otherwise you're like, your bikes, you know, you take your bikes and your friends and some snacks and you're like fucking running around the neighborhood, you know, picking up weird shit, uh, throwing it at each other, whatever, <laughs> um, doing kid shit. And so I, I think I spent a lot of my, my youth just being outside. Um, and then my mom gardened a lot uh, when we were growing up. And so we were just kind of in the garden often, like caring for plants and things like that. That was very, that was a common thing that we had going on in our house. Um, I don't know that I really got into like studying plants. Well, no, no, I, I think like, yeah, I was super obsessed with animals from a really young age. I was, like, super into monarch butterflies. We'd go to the groves in Santa Cruz and see them uh, when I was a kid. And, like, back then, the populations were so huge, and you would walk into those groves, and they were everywhere. You couldn't see the trees. Um, And I've been back since, and it's never been that good. But um, So, yeah, I grew up with that. Uh, We'd go watch the whale migrations. Um, There's so much, like, really cool, like, natural history, like uh, facilities out there, like cool rescue places, cool museums. The aquariums are awesome. And that's what we grew up doing. And so I think my parents did a really good job of like feeding, you know, my little love for nature. They just like really juiced it up and it just carried into my, into my adulthood. Um, I've never really been without plants or animals in my life. Um, this is kind of always where I've been, which is funny. Cause like my siblings aren't really like that. Like, I have to hike a few times a week to stay sane. And, like, my sister's like, yeah, I don't know. Like, hike's okay, but, like, whatever. <laughs> and, like, my brothers are like, yeah, outside's cool, but, like, I'm not that into it. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what that feels like <laughs> to just not yeah. be like, what? so <laughs> married to nature. I know. Just, like, I don't know how to be any other way. And so that's always, that's always kind of funny between the four of us. But, yeah. Yeah, so I guess this is so it was never out. a question for you going into school. You're like, I'm going to work in ecology to some degree. Um, so I, I grew up thinking I was going to be a marine biologist, which I think any kid who like wants to be a biologist or study animals is like, I'll be a marine biologist. Because, like, I don't know, that's what you grew up with uh, knowing, like that, that being a job. Uh, um, even though I, I watched, like, Reading Rainbow and all that kind of stuff a lot. And they always had scientists on there. I didn't ever really think of being any other type of scientist, but yeah, I thought about studying animals for a long time. Um, I really want to study whales. I was super into whales for a long time. And, um, and then I got to, I got to high school and I actually uh, started to, 
I wanted to, to be an astronaut. Um, I'm not quite sure where I got that from, but I, I think it was just like this idea of studying the unknown, going somewhere different. I had this idea that we had that we had already discovered everything that there was to discover here on Earth. Like, oh yeah, we, we had it fucking figured out. Like, we, we saw the things, you know, everything else is whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did one pass, uh, that's fine. Um, I ended up taking oceanography later on and realized how fucking fucked up oceans are. They're so cool and weird. Um, but anyway, so I wanted to go to space. Um, so I got into astronomy and physics pretty hard. And that's actually what I studied um, right out of high school. Um, I was studying astrophysics for a while, which is fine <laughs> if you love math, um, which I don't like math that much. Um, but it was cool. Um, it was cool. I learned a lot of cool stuff. Uh, I think what I liked about physics is the same thing I like about ecology. And it's this idea that everything is like working together to make something happen. You know, like in physics, you just have all like Newtonian physics. You have all these different forces, gravity, gravity, friction, the normal force, all these things working together to like make a ball roll down a fucking hill or something like that. Right. Um, and in ecology, it's the same thing. You have all these like little different parts and, and they get smaller and smaller as you go. But all these little different things working together to like make this big thing happen, you know, this big habitat happen in, in, in that uh, sense. And so. I think that's what I, what I liked about this two things. Um, I eventually got out of physics. I went into video game design for a second. Um, yeah, so I did that for, for a bit. Uh, the, the economy crashed in 08, and I was like, fuck, um, what do I do with all of this like half, half-ass degrees that I've got? Um, so I ended up going back to school, and... I went back for funsies. Uh, I was getting laid off from my job. I was like working at a law office, like of all the places you could imagine me. I was at a law office. Um, the Deepwater Horizon spill had just happened. And I was kind of like in this mindset of like, I want to do something more than write my senator uh, or, you know, donate to some fucking NGO. Um, and what I really wanted to do was I wanted to go out there and help rescue the animals because here I'm like an animal centric person. And I'm like, I need to help these animals. I need to do something. Um, and so I got into wildlife rehabilitation uh, and I started volunteering at uh, the wildlife center of Silicon Valley, which is in San Jose, um, great facility. And I started learning about native wildlife and that was kind of my gateway back into biology. I went back to school took some oceanography classes, took some horticulture classes. I started kind of like going back into the life sciences, um, not really sure where it was going to take me actually, um, thinking maybe vet school so I could continue working with wild animals, that kind of stuff. I loved the medical aspect of that. That's really fun. Um, but I was just kind of like poking around, you know, volunteer. I did a lot of volunteer work, which is unfortunately something that you have to do, I think, in this field. To get any type of experience, you have to, like, sacrifice your time um, to get some of these skills. Um, and so I did a lot of that kind of stuff, uh, just learning along the way, looking at people's jobs and being like, what are they doing? What skills are they using? Um, like, what stuff might I need to know so I could get those jobs? And that's kind of where, when my brain started clicking in that way, like, okay, I want to do this. I want to I wanna help 
if I want to help, you know, like that initial inspiration from the spill, if I want to help what's going on here, like what are the things I actually need to learn in it? It turned into this like, you know, first, this first like really short-sighted thing of like, I'm going to train to go help at oil spills. And it's turned into this career of, of really immersing myself in like the nuance and complexity that is conservation, habitat restoration, you know, ecology, all of that stuff. It's just so, it, it's everything. And so that was, that was my gateway in, uh, was wildlife rehabilitation. And I, I did that while I went back and got my bachelor's. And um, I remember taking a bio 200 class and um, I had a professor, Mr. Ikeda, and uh, he introduced me to research biology, like reading papers and uh, formulating experiments and the, the intricacies of the scientific method and how to really apply it and apply it in a really good way. And so I started learning how to do like research science and that opened up a whole other world. I was like, oh my God, this is fucking cool. I didn't even know I could do this. I didn't know this is how science worked. And, um, and yeah, I just kind of kept, I just kind of kept immersing myself in, in it until I found a place that felt right. And, and there's so many directions I felt like I could have gone. I was like super into like raptors and other birds for a long time. Um, I've been really big into like, I feel like everyone gets into like wolves and coyotes and like apex predators. Like I had that phase. Um, I've, I've been into so many different uh, taxa and things like that. Um, and I think what I love most about uh, plants generally um, is, is again, this plant insect interaction. I feel like this is the basis of, I mean, other than soils, you can get into soils, but like insect uh, plant relationships are, are like such a basis of so many habitats. Uh, they really like tell you what's going to be there, what can stay. Um, and they're so like indicative of things that are going on in the wider, uh, ecosystem and stuff like that. And so I, I really just like to be in the, I feel like, I, I don't know, at some point I get, I gave up these ideas of like, I'm going to save the animals. I'm going to save, save the rainforest or something, these huge ideas. And I'm like, I really just want to understand like the foundations of, of everything. Cause that's where it's at. That's where you save your beloved species, that's where you save, you know, all of those um, iconic things is in their habitat. You know, we see a lot, we saw that with like uh, all those ecosystem engineers and all their reintroductions and all that kind of stuff. Like you think of like the wolves and Yellowstone and stuff like that and, and how it's like the animals, but also the habitat is shaping the animals and, and vice versa. And so, um, yeah. That's really cool. I know I completely know how you feel with like the starting big and having to kind of channel it into something yeah. you know, like I for years would like have this like semi depression about mm -hmm. like oh nothing I do is ever gonna fix climate change like the biodiversity's <sighs> crisis is gonna collapse with with or without yes. me but I'm like at this point I'm like all right if I'm doing all I can then yes. I'm doing all I can you know yeah the uh, the grief that comes with everything that we know a lot um, I know but I mean it's kind of perfect then because you're doing tissue is. culture to a degree for conservation like that's yeah. very acute action to take the pressure yeah. off of poaching and reinforced you know deforestation for these you know there's a huge market now for carnivorous plants because they're uh, 
you know, the internet especially, I feel like is really normal. That's how I got into them. Like I'm, yeah. I'm right in that wave, you know? Yeah. But, um, I know. That's super cool that you're yeah. actually like, that's putting it, you know, boots on the ground almost. Yeah. I think we all like, uh, I had these big plans of like doing something so systemic. Um, but I've really found the beauty, uh, in, in just finding your corner of the world and being a good steward of that thing. So whether it's like your home garden, uh, or, you know, the, pl- the plants that I'm growing at work, uh, you know, that have their mother populations in a different place, like finding your little corner of the world and just being really loving to it and, and helping it along. And so, um, and that, that feels good. I can see the immediate impact from my, from my work too, when you have such big designs to like save the world or, you know, whatever, uh, it's, it, you're just like throwing so much of your energy into such a big problem and, and it will exhaust you really fast, but you know, yeah, for something small, uh, but it's not insignificant. I think all of us can do little things, uh, all of our jobs, managing whatever areas that we're in. It's all important. It, it all, hooks back up to each other, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Got to find your hope somewhere, so. <laughs> See, this, I was <laughs> in administration first. Yeah, I know, that's the alternative. It's like, we're all dead, this is fucked. I know. And and really, though, I feel like, even if we are all dead, uh, there's still nothing, like, I wouldn't do anything different. This is, and I feel like so many people that are in our profession, like, this is kind of always who we've been. If I wasn't, doing this work here at Cornavero, I would be, you know, doing it somewhere else. I'd be, you know, have my... Yeah, like, plants are fun still, you know? Like, yeah. Like, going out swinging and having fun doing it. Yeah, exactly. I don't, again, I don't know any other way to be, and so I'd be doing a community garden or some shit like that, um, which is still an idea I have. So. I mean, as long as we can kind of keep shit going on a shoestring until a better time comes along. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's like we're the life raft generation. We just have to kind of, yeah. once, uh, hopefully in 200 years, people are going to be really on top of their shit. I know. I know. I mean, throughout history, humans have fucked up. Um, you know, even, even the people that were here before European colonizers, their ancestors fucked up a lot. They, you know, they made mistakes. We're all human. We're learning um, but they also had thousands of years to get it right. And they eventually did. And so I'm like, exactly. Hey, give us, give us a few hundred, give us a couple thousand. We'll figure it out again. We'll come back to those, those ways that are most beneficial to everyone. We're going to fuck things up along the way. Uh, hopefully we just don't go too far, uh, so that we can fix it. Um, but I think there's a lot of really good people out there who have the right intentions. And so, you know, live and learn. Um, so that also brings me a lot of hope too, Michael. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Like restoration is kind of a newer science. Like it is. You know, even in the seventies, you read about restoration. It's like, oh, we planted 9,000 Douglas firs where there wasn't ever those before <laughs> because we need timber and the forest is back and woohoo. It's just like, well, good all God. right, good start. Oh my God. I know all those little faux pas. I'm always just like, oh yeah. But, um, <laughs> Just the confidence they did it with. I'm like, what the fuck? Oh my god, the fucking sheer audacity. There's like, we're just gonna fucking do this. It's gonna be great. You're like, okay. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen like some of the older 
papers too. I took a, uh, limnology class, which is like lakes, uh, lakes and streams and stuff like that. We studied the ecology of those, uh, ecosystems. And, uh, we were reading some papers from like, I, I guess it'd be like 1800s, early 1900s. I, I forget. Um, but like the, the pioneers of, of limnology and stuff like that. And I swear to God, these are like, you know, the only scientific papers at the time. And they're like a half page and they're like, yeah, here's my introduction, a couple sentences. And like, this is my Michelle's methods, a, hand, a spattering of data. And they're like, okay, this is a, uh, this is the way it is. I'm like, wow, off of like that single data set, you're just going to make these broad assumptions. That's super bold of you guys. Um, and then like, you know, several decades later, they're like, oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's great. Like fish and wildlife started oh to like stock lakes because World War II vets were bored after, you know, the war. Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's really? just like, oh, you know, we put 900 rainbow trout in this pristine, like fishless environment. And now it's, you know. 70 years later and it's just like oh golden trout are being bred out of existence because <laughs> a bunch of a bunch of boomers were bored don't get me wrong i love rainbow trout it is really delicious but good lord leave it where it's supposed to be yeah life's gonna live regardless of us it just might be oh, that's the thing. going back to the time machine thing i'd rather go yeah. forward like fifty thousand years and see what happens yeah oh i know that'd be really interesting to see um, what's balanced out. I, I took a conservation genetics class and we were studying like the models and uh, stuff that they use to project how long species have until they like go to extinction or something like that. And it's like so many of these models they're like, oh yeah, we only want to see out to a hundred years because like after that like we're dead and like fuck it. Yeah. No cares and like seriously? Oh my god. <laughs> they're like whatever 100 years and like that's such a such a short mindset to keep I, and i think that's been uh something that's a, a fault that's like underlied modern conservation is this really short view that we have of the world which is silly because like we know how how things take to evolve and and to spread and you know to do their thing and, uh, and still we have this really short mindset of like, oh, 100 years is so far from now, but it, it's really not. Yeah. Um, and if like we have any hope of saving things, we really need to be um, looking out, you know, several hundreds of years to, to really make solid worthwhile plans. If we're not doing that, then we're just putting a bandaid on a broken leg. <laughs> absolutely yeah. i think that is a fantastic point to end on too yeah. um so yeah thank you very much for coming on yeah thanks this is uh i'm chatting with you do you have anything you want to plug anything you want people to know about um let me see do I need to plug um i don't know i guess i just encourage people to to learn about the land that they live on, the plants that were there before, the people that were there before. Um, it's gonna tell you a lot about, uh, about your home and it's gonna connect you deeper to the land and to the plants and animals that you probably already love. Um, but, but I encourage people to be really intentional about learning those things. Um, I think that's how we all, as a society, are gonna get back in the right direction. Um, 
and get things back on track is when people find that connection to the place that they that they're from, that they live in now, currently, whatever it is, um, is is that personal connection back to to the land, to the animals, to the plants. And so, um, find your local native plant society, find your local uh, you know tribe and stuff like that, whatever, and and learn from those people, those experts that are in your area about uh, the land you inhabit, um, and and hopefully that leads you to do. Um, it leads you to become a better steward of, of your own of your own piece of land, whether it's your backyard or my, you know, your patio garden or something like that. And so, yeah, there's nothing but net positive great. from doing that. Besides the exactly. depressive phase where you're like, oh my god, everything's screwed. But yeah. you can get past that. <laughs> but we're all in together, so. <laughs> exactly. <I'm not> <laughs>